Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. This is the first of a two-part discussion with Dr. Andrew Herring, who's the Associate Director of Research at Highland Hospital, which is part of the Alameda Health System in Oakland, California. He's also the Medical Director of the Substance. In addition, he's an Assistant Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine at UC San Francisco. He's done a lot of work around the use of buprenorphine and specifically the use of buprenorphine after an overdose with opiates. And so he's going to talk today about the data that goes into that, the actual process of how he does it, and what he thinks is sort of a good place to start if you are somebody that has not done this before in your clinical setting. Part two is going to be the nitty-gritty data behind all of this. Dr. Herring has a lot of references for this talk, and I've listed all of them in the show notes. I'm not going to specifically call them out each time he brings them up, but go ahead and take a look at the show notes and they will be there. All right, Dr. Herring, the mic is yours. It's a great pleasure to be here and to talk about a very, very interesting subject that I really hope takes off. I think that we all have a recognition that overdose and the post-overdose time period is incredibly important time for emergency physicians to intervene. I have no financial disclosures. Our objective today, first of all, is we need to understand the pharmacology of buprenorphine. So we understand what aspects of that pharmacology are relevant to the treatment of opioid overdose after naloxone reversal. And second, we're going to talk about determining appropriate candidates for buprenorphine after naloxone reversal of opiate overdose. You know, who is this really going to work for? Why does this work and who's it going to work for? I'm the principal investigator and one of the directors of the California Bridge Program. And this is relevant because this is the network of folks who we have been encouraging to do buprenorphine after overdose for several months now, six months or so. And these are the folks that I maintain daily, weekly contact with, and I'm learning about their experiences with all aspects of buprenorphine initiation in the ER. To give you an idea of the scale, nearly 10,000 patients have been identified since we started, 6,000 of them. And when I say provided with treatment, that means they actually got buprenorphine in their mouth. So that's 6,000 buprenorphine initiations. That's a lot of data. So that's a lot of opportunities for things to go great and for things to go terribly wrong. So overall, I can tell you that 48 of the 52 EDs that report to us from the border with Mexico all the way up to the forest in the north report offering buprenorphine after overdose. So this is actually a real aspirational goal. I was surprised that things moved this quickly. I was expecting a little more pushback. There certainly are some holdouts who really felt like the evidence wasn't there and, and are, are not doing it. But the vast majority of hospitals have integrated the algorithm we're going to talk about today and have moved forward with this practice of offering buprenorphine to patients after a non-fatal opioid overdose is reversed with naloxone. So this is our basic approach. You're starting with people who have overdosed presumptively due to heroin or fentanyl. Now, this is a big deal, right? You don't want to do this on someone who's on methadone. And the reasons you don't want to do it to someone who's on methadone, first of all, is it just doesn't make any sense. If they're on methadone, it means they want to be on methadone and they should stay on methadone. There's no public health benefit. There's no mortality benefit. There's no individual benefit. There's just no reason in the world to initiate buprenorphine in someone who's already on methadone. So that's the first thing. It just doesn't make sense. 
And then the second thing is the pharmacology is more complicated because the buprenorphine and methadone, they compete with each other. They tend to fight. And methadone has all this redistribution into lipophilic stores and is just legendary for creating problems with initiation of buprenorphine. And that's borne out in the literature and well as my own experience with you know, over a thousand inductions. The, the ones that have precipitated withdrawal, it's just methadone, 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 methadone is the suspect when things go south. That's the first part. Now, the good thing is most patients, it's not hard to figure out if they're on methadone, right? I mean, this is, this is a big deal for them to enroll in a clinic and to be regularly taking it. Very unusual for this to be not obvious from the get-go. Bystanders typically know, and when they wake up, they tell you. You do not need to do a urine drug screen to prove this. You just simply need to have a good ER doc's confidence. This is not a methadone patient. And that's where you start. Here's where things get complicated. We all know that what is an overdose could be a whole lot of things, right? This could be a subdural. This could be DKA. This could be sepsis. You know, there's a lot of things that get Narcan in the field that really might not be a pure opioid overdose. Or maybe it's someone who uses their regular amount of opioid, but because they have emerging septic shock, it hits them really hard and they go down. Or maybe they use their regular dose of opioid and they've got a pneumonia. Maybe they've got COVID. There's just a ton of stuff that you are all amazing emergency clinicians. And this is what you train to do is to take these undifferentiated patients and figure it the heck out. So don't go charging down this pathway of giving buprenorphine if you have no idea what's going on, right? If you're still in that fantastic ER phase that we all love where you're like, okay, what is going on here? And you're excluding and figuring things out to getting down to a diagnosis, don't jump in there with a bunch of buprenorphine. This is for someone where it's really clear. You know, like the story I presented, you know, the guy is a young guy using heroin or fentanyl with his buddies. He uses too much and he stops breathing. That is an opioid overdose. He's not also snorting Xanax. He's not also half a bottle of vodka deep, all these other things. He hasn't just fallen down a flight of stairs. He doesn't have a temperature of 103. His sugar is not 600 and all of those kind of things. I spent some time to belabor this point because I think it's the single most important point is that this is the key, is to understand your exclusion criteria because this is the only way, in my opinion, you're ever going to get into trouble with administering buprenorphine after opioid reversal with naloxone. It's by doing it in someone who's otherwise sick, intoxicated, or altered, or on benzos. That's the only way. So if you can get out of that zone. It's free and clear. And there's many ways to do this. And I've seen people use all varieties of doses and all these different things. We've chosen a dose here because we kind of have to, but really there's a lot of options for this. So moving forward, you've excluded all of these things. And now in front of you, you want a patient who's awake. And this gets to this idea of cows, alertness, sedation, opioid agonism, antagonism. I really see this as they need to be able to tell you that they 
understand what you're going to do. You're going to give them buprenorphine. You think it's going to make them better. You need to have that shared decision-making that you together decide to do this. The cows here is really not something we can say for certain what the right cows number is. I should mention what cows is in this context. It's the clinical opiate withdrawal scale, which attempts to give an objective measure of withdrawal. There are multiple calculators on the internet, although I'd caution against Googling cows scale because the first several pages of results gave me ads about how to buy a scale to actually weigh cattle. Cows score will give you the right results. My feeling is that if they've been reversed and they're what I call positive, meaning that they're on the withdrawal end of the spectrum. They're not somnolent, sleepy, nodding, right? So if you walk in the door and someone's been given Narcan, but they're already nodding, that's different. That's actually reversing an overdose with buprenorphine, which is not the subject of our discussion today. Really for today, it's someone who is at least a little anxious and uncomfortable. So that's why I put around four is the cows that I'm be looking at for this. If that's the case, then you're good to go. If they're less than that, I would just watch them. I would not intentionally administer naloxone for the purpose of administering buprenorphine. That gets into some ethical territory that I feel a little uncomfortable with. So that's the person you're just going to provide supportive care and do as you always do. But if they're up in bed, their eyes are open, they're a little anxious, maybe tachycardic, or they're just frankly in withdrawal, then you've got the green light. Now, be careful with the really high cows, folks. If you have a full-blown agitated delirium, remember that buprenorphine is a little bit of a slow onset. So if you've got a raging bull who's pulling out IVs and vomiting everywhere and angry, upset, that's not really going to work for just putting in some sublingual buprenorphine. Backing up a step, if there's one thing that I really kind of wish that, or what I'm going to do for the next revision of this algorithm, it's going to be thinking about the naloxone dose in that you really want to use the lowest possible dose of naloxone to achieve reversal. And you want to avoid sending them into really extreme withdrawals. Because once they're in extreme withdrawal, then you got a different scenario, which is the agitated delirium, where a sublingual medication just isn't practical, and it takes a little bit too long. So you're going to have to manage them to get to the point where they're comfortable enough to be able to talk to you and take a sublingual medication. So once they're there, then we describe this as 16 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine administered as a single dose or in divided doses. This is to acknowledge that there's a really tremendous practice variation here, and we don't have great evidence for the inductionology here, the spread of what is the best dose. We're going to dive into a little bit more down the line into doses today, but there are some folks who just start with 16 and some folks who start with two. I think both of those strategies can work, which is why we kind of lumped it together into this single or divided doses. They've got advantages or disadvantages. As you saw from the initial case, a really common place to start is just eight. If you've got IV, which is fantastic, it's cheap, it works. IV buprenorphine is a great drug. I encourage you to get it on your formulary. Buprenex is the trade name. Use it all the time. Quite a potent drug for pain management and has a lot of advantages. This is the perfect case. If they're 
cows are really high, they're vomiting, that kind of thing, you can give them 0.3 buprenorphine, which is a fairly low dose. So you might just start with 0.6. You do that. And then you just observe the patient until they look good. This is a big deal. Overdose, EMS, transport reversal, buprenorphine, a lot of moving parts here. Let the dust settle. Feel confident that this person has been well taken care of. Don't just, you know, give them a bunch of bup and then discharge them. Watch them for a couple hours. It's okay to keep going per your own practice there. If you need to keep making them feel better, you certainly can with additional doses. That's the overview of the approach. Stepping back, I think we need a little perspective on this approach because it's going to could come as a shock if you're walking out of your your ED waiver course. I want to quickly go through how we got here. So this is the by the book case, right? As you screen and diagnose OUD, opioid use disorder, you assess withdrawal, you do lab testing, and then you treat with buprenorphine. It's two to four milligrams. Then you wait two hours and then you give four milligrams and your maximum for the total of day one is eight milligrams. I just told you to meet someone and then give them 16 right off the bat potentially, right? So it's a pretty radical departure. And the I want you to know where this came from. I'd actually like to ask you how you feel about screening for opiate use disorder. And is this a useful part of a clinical pathway? Uh, do you use it in your own personal practice? And do you have any evidence that suggests that it, it is or is not helpful in the best way to go about it? Our experience with screening and diagnosing OUD, someone comes in and they say, hey, I snort heroin and I want help. And then you start asking them, do you take heroin more longer than you intended to? Have you tried to quit heroin? Have you had a great deal of time taken by your activities trying to find heroin, right? People look at you and they say, what are you asking these questions for? I told you, I feel sick. And then the provider is like, wait, where is there a dot phrase for this? And then these places that require a consultation just drive me insane, right? You know, you're told me to use heroin, you're in withdrawal. I need to talk to psychiatry. Or then someone pushes back and they say, oh, I can't possibly treat opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. I haven't been trained in the DSM-5. So this was just a logistic nightmare that just did not work. And then assessment of withdrawal. Walter Ling, wonderful mentor of mine who came up with the clinical opioid withdrawal, is the first one to tell you that it's just very silly to over-rely on cows in a clinical circumstance. You've got someone, they're diaphoretic, their pupils are pie plates, you know, they haven't used heroin in 12 hours. You don't need to do a cows on that person, right? You're just going to get the same thing. Why are you asking me these questions? I told you I feel sick. The providers are like, ah, oh, wait, is there a dot phrase? You know, do I need a specialist to help me do this assessment? And then people will push back and say, hey, I haven't been trained in this scale. And if I haven't been trained, I can't use it. And if I can't use the scale, I can't do buprenorphine. And there you've got the guy in front of you who just is being denied a really obvious treatment. Lab testing. Oh my God. It seems so simple confirm opioid use, exclude methadone use. In practicality, urine testing is just a nightmare in my experience in the ERs. I just peed or blood tests. I hate needles. And then you go down this whole world of criminalization of drug use, parole officer disclosure, labs lose samples. You just don't need to do it. So I really see no role for any kind of testing 
aside from pregnancy testing in women, which shouldn't slow down the process. If they're in withdrawal, you can treat them with buprenorphine. All the other labs are purely optional. Then the dosing. Now, heroin is stronger than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when many of these guidelines were developed. Fentanyl was not an issue in 2000 when these guidelines were developed. There is just no one in my experience in a modern urban context in the United States who regularly uses heroin. Okay, me, I can't say no one. Let's just say very few people are going to be happy with four milligrams. It's just not going to work. Anyone who knows about buprenorphine, as the treatment gets out in the community, the community of people who use drugs, they know that four milligrams is a small dose. So they're going to push back. Why are you only giving me four? You're going to give it to them and they're going to feel, still feel terrible. Like they maybe won't feel worse or maybe they will actually, but they're not going to feel great. They're going to feel like it's not working. And if you really push that and wait two hours, they're going to walk, walk out the ED and they're going to tell everyone they know to don't bother with ED because it sucks and it doesn't work. So my analysis of this traditional approach in the ER was that it just didn't work. Patients didn't like it. It was expensive testing, consultation, training. It took too long and it was too complicated. So we've just boiled this down to really simple. You wait till you have withdrawal. That withdrawal can either be from waiting or it can be from the administration of an antagonist, naloxone. And I see no reason why those withdrawal states are different. So if you feel sick from abstaining from the opioid or you feel sick because you've been given a antagonist, naloxone, it's the same thing. You're in withdrawal. If you're in withdrawal, you can get buprenorphine. And your first dose really is kind of up to you and the patient. I don't really feel that strongly. I've found that most people are actually remarkably consistent in self-identifying into one of these buckets. Every once in a while, you'll get something off. But in general, people know if they're heavy, they know if they're middle of the road, and they know if they're light. So that's the shared decision-making that I really promote around this dosing. So for our audio-only listeners who can't see the slides that Dr. Herring has up, he suggests 4, 8, and 16 milligrams, respectively, for the categories of light, medium, and heavy users. One of the pieces that we're really looking forward to getting better at is understanding the reversal, because there's a tremendous range in practice of reversal. There are harm reduction sites in Canada where they routinely observe people using fentanyl and almost never use any naloxone. They use positioning and supplemental oxygen. And then there are other places that will push two milligrams of IV naloxone routinely. There's probably a middle ground there where your goal is to as gently as possible. You know, again, thinking of this from a patient-centered standpoint, what if this was your mom who had fallen and broken their leg and you were trying to titrate their analgesia so that they feel well? The same kind of compassion and empathy to the person who's using drugs and overdose. Like, how can I do this as gently as possible to get them to wake up and be able to understand what's going on and not send them into a delirium, but also not have them be at risk for falling back into respiratory depression the moment I, I turn my back and take care of that other STEMI that's just walked in. So that's a real future area I'd like to understand better. But once they're there, not too reversed so that they're delirious and can't understand and can't handle sublingual, but not asleep, that's your window there for administration of buprenorphine. 
You want to have shared decision making. This is something that as much as possible is supposed to increase engagement because ultimately that's really the goal here is to have a patient who trusts the medical system, who appreciates you as a doctor in a hospital so that they want to come back and engage in long-term treatment. The thing we want to avoid is a bad experience that makes people not trust the medical system, disengage from treatment, and live at increased risk for overdose death. You administer the dose. Really, the dose, we're not certain. I'm probably going to lean towards Rachel's approach, the 8 or 16 as an initial dose. But certainly, one can start with lower as long as you really commit to following it up if it's not enough. You want to follow up at minimum in half an hour. If they're not where you want them to be in half an hour, you really need to keep going or you're going to prolong suffering unnecessarily in this population. If you have access to IV, that's fabulous. It's a great drug and and you can use that in folks that are vomiting. And after you've taken care of them, they're feeling better. You want to make sure they eat, they can walk around, they've talked to a counselor, and then you discharge them. That typically means two hours for an event as serious associated with such a tremendous mortality as an opioid overdose, I think a two-hour length of stay is certainly warranted in terms of resource utilization. Now, if this is a non-overdose situation, someone can come in and withdrawal, they can be treated much more quickly than that. But for overdose, I suggest a good withdrawal period. So you really feel confident about what's going on. That is where part one is going to wrap up. And I think Dr. Heron did a really good job in the last two or three minutes giving a summary of all of the things that he's given us to think about. Part two will be the next episode in this series, and it digs really deep into the data that exists around where the dosing came from, how does Dr. Herring know that some of this is safe, and where are the gaps in the research that he's hoping to fill next. So definitely give that next one a listen. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal podcast at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, as well as earlier in this feed. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. Definitely love hearing the comments. If you have any questions for our guests, please send them my way.